Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you this morning. Thank you for being here to worship with us. Um, if you are new to the Vista or you haven't been here in a little while, we're in the second to last week of a series we started, uh, gosh, a little while ago, several months ago, called Reading Romans Backwards. We're walking through this New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, it is one of the most important uh, letters anywhere in the Bible. And so if you want to turn to Romans chapter 7, that is where we'll be today, Romans chapter 7. Next Sunday, Sarah, um, our associate community pastor, is going to wrap the series up, uh, preaching through uh, Romans 8. And so again, it's a rather unique walk through this letter. We started with the back half of the book of Romans. We wanted to look at some of the practical implications of what the Apostle Paul was saying to these churches. And then we moved to the front part of the letter, looking at chapters 1 through 8, uh, and again, we find ourselves today in, in chapter 7, and uh, I hope that today will be unbelievably encouraging for you in chapter 7. Paul is going to talk about a, a problem, um, but again, I hope that in the midst of the problem that Paul is going to be talking about, you uh, again see and find some, some real hope and some real encouragement. And I think you'll see what I mean as we get into the text a little bit. I'm going to start, um, we'll start in verse 7 here, and I'm just going to jump right in. And see what, uh, what Professor Paul has to tell us today, all right? Romans 7, verse 7, here's what he says. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Well, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Let me just take a minute and kind of sum up what Paul was saying in those, in those verses. Essentially, what Paul's getting at is this idea of the law, okay? So when the Bible talks about the law, sometimes it's referring to some different things. Sometimes it's referring to uh, the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible are called the books of the law. Other times it's talking more specifically about the, the Ten Commandments as the law, the really popular, uh, probably the most popular of all the commandments, those ten that we're familiar with. Sometimes it's referring to that. Other times it's referring to all of the laws of God. There were over 600 and something laws that God gave his people. And so uh, sometimes it's talking about all of those 600 plus commandments or laws. What he's getting at here is a really sort of broad view of the law in general, which basically is God's standard, God's moral standard, right? Um, all of God, you know, morality 101. It's, it's God's perfect, righteous standard. And what he's saying is this, like the law doesn't, doesn't produce sin in you, but rather the law reveals sin in you. Are you with me? The difference? He uses covetousness as a great example. He's like, I didn't even know that I was coveting until the law tells me, you know, you shouldn't covet. 
And then I realized, oh, wait, I covet all the time. Like everything I look, I covet, I covet constantly. So the law didn't produce covetousness. Paul's going, but when the law came along, I began to see it was revealed in me all of my sin. Okay? I've heard that said before. The law was given uh, not so much that you and I would obey every aspect of it, but rather to show us that we can't, right? To show us that we don't measure up. The law reveals the sin that is already in our hearts, okay? Now, where I really want to spend more time is the last part of chapter 7. Paul's going to talk about a struggle. He's going to talk about a conflict. And um, I want you just to kind of, as I read this, see if this doesn't sort of resonate with you a little bit, okay? Here's what Paul says, beginning in verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. We'll talk about the flesh here in a minute. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Anybody relate to that maybe a little bit? Right? Like, like, I don't know about you, but like, I read this and I'm like, wow, he is reading my mail, right? Like Paul, he's talking about this struggle, this conflict. And so this passage is actually a little bit, it's debated among some scholars. I don't know, I quite frankly, don't fully understand the debate. Uh, Some scholars, I read a, a lot of stuff this week in preparing for this text, And there are some that believe Paul is not talking about Christians, but he's talking about non-Christians. There are some that believe Paul is referring to who he was before Christ, not who he is in Christ. And so they'll point to, you know, they'll say, look, there seems to be a lot of bondage to sin in here for Paul to be talking about a Christian. But then others point out, well, you know, Paul clearly loves God's word and he delights in God's law and he seems to desire to do what's right. And there seems to be a lot of loving God's word and desiring to do what's right and what's good for him to be talking about a non-Christian. So the debate among some is, is he talking about Christian or non-Christian? Paul before he met Jesus or Paul after he met Jesus. And what I think is pretty clear as you read through the text is Paul's not talking about who he used to be. He's talking about who he is right now. So, for example, um, the, the, the verb tense changes. I read the first verses 7 through 13. The verb tense is past. He's talking about past. It's very clear. Past, this is what the law, this is what happened in the past, okay? Who he used to be and the way, the way it has worked. And then in verse 14, it changes to present tense. It, it, it changes to present tense. Paul is now not talking about the past any longer. He's talking about right 
now, who he is right now. And again, I don't know about you, but like, I think we can all agree that Paul, um, he was a pretty mature Christian. Like Paul had been walking with Jesus for about 25 years by the time he writes Romans, okay? Now, you know, I think we can all agree again, like Paul would be what we would consider kind of varsity level Christian, right? Like, like Paul preached a lot of sermons and he led a lot of people to Jesus. He planted a lot of churches. He wrote two thirds of our New Testament. Like, yeah, he's done some stuff. Like he suffered a lot for the sake of Christ. He's lived life on mission. Like if there's such thing as kind of JV level and then varsity, Paul's on the varsity level for Christians, right? And yet this mature man in the faith is going, man, there's this inner conflict, man. I, I love God and I want to do what's right and I want to do what's good and I delight in his word. And yet there's something in me that constantly is sort of pulling me away. This flesh in me is constantly pulling me in another direction so that I don't do the stuff that I really want to do. I find myself doing the very things that I hate. Paul's just really wrestling. You see the anguish in his writing, a man that's really struggling with wanting to obey God and yet not always obeying God the way he wants to. And again, I don't know about you, but I mean, that sound familiar to anybody else, right? Like, I find that really, really encouraging. He's talking about this, this conflict. So I want to just take a minute and talk about the nature of the conflict and why that conflict exists, right? The Bible's going to talk about two different births, if you will. So one is our physical birth, right? We're all born physically. And I don't have time to unpack it all. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates. And then Adam and Eve, our first parents, they sin, they rebel against God. Genesis 3 is what's called the fall. When they sin, when they rebel, um, everything then is marred, fractured, and broken by sin. And so everyone that's born physically is born into sin. And I always use this great example, but like, you know, if you have kids, you know this already, right? Because you don't have to teach kids to misbehave. They do a pretty good job of that on their own. You have to teach kids the rules. You have to teach kids how to behave. No parent ever tells them, here's, here's how you, uh, you know, get in trouble. I want to show you how to get in trouble. You know, like I, in the first service I used, in fact, I'll do it again. I used uh, the pastor's kids as really great examples of what not to do, okay? Um, so Austin told this story, I think, um, a few months back. But earlier this year, I go to pick up my youngest son, Pax, from his class, Vista Kids, and when I get there to get him, the teacher, they're very sweet. The, the teachers, they work with our kids. They're awesome. They're amazing. She was like, hey, I just wanted to let you know, um, Pax and Wyatt, Wyatt is, is Austin's oldest son. Pax is my youngest. They're in the same class. She's like, hey, they were like um, fighting and wrestling during, during class. And so we had to like separate them. And I just wanted you to know so you can talk to them. And I'm like, that's fantastic. You know, pastor's kids really setting a great example for everybody else. That's what you want, right? Uh, and so I, you know, I'm like, thank you for letting me know. And we kind of walk packs out. And then I'm like, you know, I'm going to get a little context so I can go back and actually have this conversation with my son about, you know, the way he's supposed to act in the Vista Kids room. And so I go back and I talk to the teacher and I said, hey, can you just tell me like what happened? Like, I don't know if you saw. And she goes, well, Wyatt uh, had like this little plastic toy knife thingy, right? And he was just kind of you know, messing and poking with other kids, poking other kids with this little knife. And most of the kids like just kind of scooted away from him and kind of ignored him. When he kind of was poking Pax, Pax just tackled him and like started wrestling and fighting to get the knife from him. There's part of me that's kind of proud. But anyway, I, I was like, okay, 
Uh, Pax is like, oh, let's do this, right? Like, like that's, um, so they were wrestling and fighting over this little plastic toy knife. Now, here's the thing. I know Austin and Allison, and I know them well enough to know that they didn't like talk to Wyatt before church and go, hey, buddy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sneak this little knife into Sunday school today, okay? And then when the teacher's not looking, I want you to start just shanking all the other kids. Like, you just get them. Like, be a good little domestic terrorist, and you just get them, right? Like, you, they didn't have that conversation with Wyatt. He just did that on his own. And then I didn't talk to my son and go, hey, Pax, when your teacher is talking about the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus, right? And when she is talking about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek, I want you just to tackle Wyatt and lay him out. And I want you to not give up and you just get that knife from him. Like I didn't, I didn't have the conversation with him and tell him to do that. He just did that. And so the teacher again was real sweet. Like you can have this talk. And I'm like, my kid just took care of the terrorists. Like my kid is the hero. Like he just saved the rest of like, what do you mean talk with him? No. Pax really wanted to get the knife because he wanted to shank all the rest of the kids. That looked like fun, and he wanted to partake, right? They're just little sinners, and some people will go, oh, but they're so cute, and they're so adorable. They are. They're cute, adorable sinners. That's what kids are. They're just sinners. And so you see, our first birth, we're born into sin. We can't help it. We're all sinners by nature. That's the first birth, right? Then when we're, we place our faith in Jesus, there's another birth. You might've heard the, uh, the phrase being born again. When we're born again, right? That's a spiritual birth. Our first birth was physical. Our second birth is spiritual. Our first birth is into sin. Our second birth is into righteousness. Okay. So we have these two births. And what Paul is talking about in this conflict is that although we are new creations, God's given us a new nature and a new heart as we begin to follow him, we still have to deal with our humanness. We still have to deal, we still have this flesh that is a part of our first birth. So as long as we're in this life, yes, we're already new creations in Christ, but the flesh is still there. You might say it this way, that we're not in the flesh any longer, but the flesh is still in us, right? So Paul's just talking about this conflict. And so, in fact, he says the same thing over in Galatians 5. You don't have to turn there if you don't want, but in Galatians 5, Paul's writing to another group of believers, and he says it this way. In verse 16, he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Sarah's going to talk about walking in the Spirit next week. Verse 17, for the desire of the flesh is against the Spirit, and the desire of the Spirit is against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Paul's talking about the same thing to a different group of believers, that inside of all of us, there is this battle, there's this struggle, there's this conflict that's going on, right? And this is what causes, I'm telling you, this is what causes a lot of people, a lot of believers to begin to question their salvation, when they struggle with the flesh and they struggle with sin, Satan loves to sort of whisper in your ear, man, guilt, shame, condemnation. You can't be a child of God. Look at what you're doing. Look at what you struggle with. Think of those thoughts that you're having. Like he loves to try to convince you that you're not really a child of God's. And so one of the questions I get most often as a pastor is from Christians who struggle with sin and they want to know, am I still a believer? Like, does Jesus still love me? It's this constant questioning of your salvation. So here's what I want to do, a little sidetrack from the sermon. I want to just give you some good indicators of how you can know that you are a believer that belongs to Jesus, okay? It doesn't mean you never struggle with sin, um, but there are some ways you can kind of know in your heart that, yeah, I'm on the right path. Like, I am in the fight. I'm in the battle, but I actually belong to the Lord. And then I, I think we can sum these four up into, into one big idea. But let me just start with this. First of all, if you've placed your faith in Christ and that you have this new nature, 
you begin to hate sin. It begins to bother you. I said this a few weeks ago. Your sin, if you're in Christ, should bother you. If your sin doesn't bother you and you don't care and you don't hate your sin, then, then yeah, you probably have some reason to, to wonder because it's clear that the person who wrote Romans 7, he is bothered by his sin. He hates, he says, the very thing I hate, like you can just sense this in him. He, he hates sin. And so one of the things you'll notice is that when you get this new nature, man, the things that you used to love are not the same things anymore. You begin to, to hate and detest the things that God hates and God detests. It doesn't mean you're always perfect. It doesn't mean you don't stumble and struggle. But listen, your sin begins to bother you a little bit. Before Christ, sin doesn't bother you. You live for yourself. You gratify your own desires. You don't care. Sin's no big deal. But when you become a believer, sin becomes a big deal. Number two, you actually care about obedience to God. Prior to Christ, you don't care about being obedient to what God says. And that makes no difference to you. But when you're in Christ, you begin to care about being obedient to God. Like, I want to do what God wants me to do, and I want to avoid the things God wants me to avoid. And you can sense the struggle and the fight because it's really hard sometimes. But you actually begin to care about obedience to God. You can, again, you can tell um, Romans 7, Paul wants to be obedient to the Lord. He wants it. Number three is you actually have a, a desire there's a, there's a new desire for, for God's word and for prayer. Okay, here's what I mean by that. God's word is how God primarily communicates to us, and then prayer is how we primarily communicate to God. And so when you begin to have a hunger and a desire for the word of God and for prayer, what that indicates is there's a relationship there, okay? You're not just after the gifts, you're after the giver. You want a relationship with God. And so you want to know, man, what's God's will for my life? Whenever someone comes to me and goes, how can I know God's will? Or I have a really important decision to make. And I'm, man, one of my first questions is, man, what are you reading in the word right now? Where are you? Are you reading anything in the word? God's word is how he primarily communicates to his people. And then in prayer, we communicate back to God. And so when you're given this new nature, part of what happens is you go, man, I want this relationship with God. I want to get into his word and see what he has for me. I want to, I want to talk to God in, in prayer. And then finally, you have a hunger or a desire for worship. And I don't just mean singing, because I know like some of you don't like to sing, and that's okay. Not everybody loves to sing. I'm talking about a bigger overarching picture of worship, where you on some level in your life, you have a desire to bring and express glory to God in who you are and what you do, Right? I want my life to matter and I want my life to bring glory to Jesus. Do you have that desire in you on some level to go, man, I, I want, my life is not just about me. Like I want to live for him and I want to bring glory to him. That's called worship. And so on some level, when God gives you a new heart and a new nature, your desire for that begins to change. And so again, I said you could probably sum all of these up. Here's the big idea. When God gives you that new nature, what you'll notice is ultimately he begins to change your heart, change your desires. It's really all about your desires. That's how you, that's how you begin to know. It doesn't, again, like, the, like Paul says, there's a struggle, there's a battle going on there, but your desires begin to change. They're no longer strictly selfish desires. You begin to, to live for another. This is what Paul's getting at. We're given a new nature. We're called new creations. Our desires change. This is what Paul says in Romans 7. He desires to do what is right and good, but he struggles to do it. He loves God's word and he wants to be obedient. This is the mark of a believer. An unbeliever doesn't care what God thinks and doesn't seek to, to obey God. So here's the question. The question then, if we can admit the struggle is real, right? 
If we can admit that the struggle is real, then the question for us is, is what do we do about it? Like, how do we fight? How do we sort of wage the battle? How do we wage this war? And so, again, looking at the text, there's a couple things I think that'll just help us. And the first one is, it's pretty clear. That's to do what the Apostle Paul does, and that's just to be honest about the struggle. You got to be honest about the struggle, right? One thing that strikes me about the Apostle Paul is that he was unbelievably honest about his struggle. And, he, and despite all of his accomplishments, right? We've talked about Paul before. Unbelievably accomplished man. Highly educated. You know, he, he had the, the highest education of his day that you could possibly get. He wrote a lot of books. He preached a lot of sermons. He was a Pharisee before he was a Christian. A very, very smart man and had accomplished a bunch. And yet... You don't see Paul walking around bragging about all the stuff that he's done and how smart he is and how holy and pious and righteous he is. In fact, in a lot of his letters, you see just the opposite, right? So here in Romans 7, he's like, man, I struggle. I still struggle with the flesh. Let me show you a few more over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul writes, for I am the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul's like, I'm not even worthy of my calling. Over in Ephesians 3, verse 8, Paul says this, to me, though I am the least, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul says, I'm I'm the least of all the saints. Pretty telling from someone like the Apostle Paul, right? Over in uh, 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, one of the last letters that Paul wrote Paul says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. Some of your versions say, I'm the chief. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of all the sinners. So I want you to follow me. Someone like the apostle Paul, again, who we could agree is kind of varsity level Christian walking with Jesus for many, many, many years, constantly is going, I'm not worthy of my calling. I'm the least of the saints. I'm the, I mean, I'm the worst. I'm the chief of sinners. I struggle with the flesh. You see, Paul's just unbelievably honest and real about the struggle. And yet, again, I'm just going to say this. I've been in church my whole life. I'm a preacher's kid. Like I was always there. I've always been in and around churches. I've served on staff at churches. I've been a pastor here for 15 years. And I'm just going to be honest, in the church, there is often an unbelievable amount of pretending, right? Right? I mean, we just have a hard time sometimes being honest about the struggle. You know, we, gotta, we always try to, we just try to pretend. Like, how are you? Fine. Everything good? Yeah, we're good. We just, we just like we put on the spiritual face and the facade and we don't want to be real about it. The Apostle Paul was unbelievably honest about the struggle. And so sometimes we pretend and we just, again, I, I, this is the kind of the world I grew up in. You pretend you have your stuff together. You be a good little Christian boy or girl. You don't, you know, you don't let people in. And so I'm hoping we're starting to break some of this stuff down where we can just learn to be real and honest and vulnerable with one another. That's what Paul did. But so often we try to pretend. Sometimes we try to manage our sin. We talked about this before. We try to manage it. Well, I can manage it. I can, I can sort of keep it on the shelf over here. I can, I can just keep sin in this little spot over here and then I'm fine with the rest of my life. But that's not how sin works. You can't manage and control your sin. Sin always sort of, takes you places you don't want to go. It always takes you further than you want to go. Sin has a way of sort of getting the foot in the door and then just busting down the whole door. You can't manage it. You can't control it. 
You can't, uh, sometimes we try to justify it and excuse it, right? Our flesh, our sin, we try to go, well, yes, I struggle with this or I do these things or I think these things or whatever, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And, -so. and we, we often compare ourselves to other broken, fallen, sinful people. Well, you know, you can always find somebody worse than you, right? I'm, yeah, I do this, but I'm not as bad as, you know, Bob over there or whatever. And we try to, we try to compare ourselves to other people as a justification or an excuse. Other times we try to medicate if I can just medicate the flesh, you know, drugs, alcohol, sex, possessions, materialism, whatever it may be. So many times, man, instead of just being honest about it, dragging the sin, dragging that flesh from darkness into the light so we can find freedom, instead we just sort of pretend and make excuses and cover it up. And I think the first step is just to be honest about the struggle. We got to learn to be honest about the struggle. That's one of the reasons we push small groups and you know, community and accountability and so, so much here. Because we know that like at the end of the day, you're never gonna find hope and healing for those strongholds in your life until you can be honest and real about them. As long as they stay hidden, you're never gonna find victory in those things. Paul was honest about the struggle. And then finally, the other thing is that Paul, um, it's clear as you read through the New Testament, all of his letters, that like Paul was constantly nourishing his new nature. I think we have to find ways, look for ways to nourish our new nature. Things that are nourished tend to grow. Am I right? When you nourish or feed something, it tends to grow. And so Paul said, look, there's this conflict. There's this battle that's going on inside of you. And you've got the old nature, the flesh, and you've got the new nature given to you by Jesus. And I'm telling you, the one that's going to win out in your life is going to be the one that you nourish. And so we've got to find ways to nourish the new nature because here's the thing. Sanctification, sanctification is basically the process whereby we become more like Jesus. It's a process, but it is not automatic. Some people live as if sanctification is automatic. Like I'm a believer, it's just gonna happen. No, it's not just gonna happen. You have, to, you have to fight for it a little bit. You have to learn to feed the new nature. That's what sanctification is. It's you feeding your new nature in Christ. We said it this way before, and I'll quote, that your life is an environment perfectly designed to grow whatever it's currently growing. Your life is an environment perfectly designed to grow whatever it's currently growing, which means if you look at what is produced in your life, if you look at the fruit of your life and you don't like what's being produced, then you can't just keep doing the same habits and patterns and behaviors and expect to get different fruit. So if you want the fruit of your life to be different, then you've got to change the environment of your life, which means start some new habits and new practices and new behaviors. Part of the reason that the church exists, listen, we can't give you a new nature. We can't give you the new nature. Only Jesus can give you your new nature. But you know what the church can do? The church can help you foster and nourish and feed that new nature. And to a large degree, that's what the church is for. The church is here to aid and to help in your sanctification, to help give you resources and tools to help foster and feed and grow that new nature in Christ. So it's the reason we talk about our discipleship pathway. It's five things we've tried to just be upfront and clear and make it as simple as we can. Worship and connect and give and serve and go. Because we believe, look, if you'll commit to those things, you will be feeding and fostering that new nature. It's part of the reason we developed our rule of life, which is basically, um, again, some daily and weekly habits that you can begin to implement where you get into the word and you get into prayer and you interact with a stranger 
Like they're just some daily and weekly habits. And the whole goal is to help foster and nourish your new nature in Christ. Because I'm telling you, if there's a conflict, the nature that's going to win out in your life is going to be the one that you feed and nourish. So the Apostle Paul is simply saying, look, you got to be honest about the struggle and, and you got to feed the nature that you want to live. And the last thing I wanted to mention a lot of the stuff I read this week said, really, Romans 7 and 8 should be read together because uh, in reality, Romans 7, Paul is sort of addressing the problem. And then in Romans 8, he really gets to more of the solution. So chapters and verses in our Bible sometimes cause us to stop at certain points when uh, maybe it'd be helpful just to keep on reading. I don't want to step too much on what Sarah's going to talk about next Sunday. She's going to talk about living life in the spirit and unpack Romans 8, which is an amazing, I'd encourage you to read ahead, read Romans 8. It is fantastic, right? But I wanted to end with, with this um, because I mentioned like sometimes when we struggle with sin, like Paul, like Paul just mentioned there, I mentioned that Satan loves to kind of tell us you're not good enough, you don't measure up, you can't really be a child of God's guilt, shame, condemnation. I love the way Romans 8 verse 1 says, after talking about the struggle, Paul then reminds them, in spite of the struggle, I know you guys struggle with some stuff. He says, let me remind you of this, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? Like he's going, look, in spite of the fact that you wrestle with sin and flesh, you don't have to be beat down and depressed and listen to the lies of the guilt and the shame and the condemnation because you got to remember that even though the battle is real, the war has already been won. Like Jesus already went to a cross and he died on the cross for your sin. So despite your struggle, there is no more condemnation for those that are in Christ, right? Like that ought to give us some hope in the middle of the fight, you know? Like I can keep going day after day in the midst of the struggle because I know Jesus has already taken care of the condemnation. So I can live with freedom and peace and joy. And so, again, I don't know about you, but when I read about someone like the Apostle Paul, who still wrestles and struggles with sin, it just gives me a little bit of hope, right? And I think about just practically, man, being honest about the struggle. We can be honest about that. That we can begin to look for ways to feed and nourish our new nature, because that's who we are in Christ. And then we have some victory because we can remember that, you know what? All the stuff I still struggle with, Christ already died for it. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. Um, God, we're grateful for the life of this man named Paul who, um, God, in spite of all the different ways in which you used him, he was unbelievably honest about the struggle. And so God, I pray that we could learn from him today, that we could learn from your servant Paul that First of all, God, that we would just be honest about the struggle, that you would place people in our lives who we can be honest with and real with, that we could drag our sin and our struggles from darkness into the light, and that in doing so, God, we might find the freedom and the hope that we look for. Father, I pray that you would help us to begin to, to feed our new nature. God, that we would get into community and, 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 and God, begin to serve and, and God, get a hunger for your word and for prayer, that we would do things in our life, God, to feed the new nature that you have so richly given us. And then, God, I pray that we would live not defeated, God, that we would live um, not 
listening to the guilt and the shame and the condemnation, but God, that you would continually remind us that there is no condemnation for those that are in you. And I pray, God, when we begin to feel that, that you would just remind us of Romans 8.1. Remind us that even though we're in a conflict and we're in a battle, that you've already won the war. So we pray for that today in Jesus' name. Amen.